Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Omer and Yuval from Ingonyama. We cover the foundation of the company, how Ingonyama aims to tackle the ZK hardware space, and the role ZK hardware acceleration has in the larger ZK story. We also discuss what the hardware product cycle looks like, how a ZK ASIC is made, the algorithmic component in ZK hardware, some of the research coming out of Ingonyama, and more. Quick disclosure, I'm an investor in the project via ZKV, so very excited to catch up on their work. Now, before we kick off, I wanted to highlight the ZK Jobs Board for you. There you can find jobs from top teams working in ZK. So if you're looking for your next opportunity in the space, be sure to check it out. And if you're a team looking to find great talent, be sure to add your job there as well. We also have our upcoming ZK Summit event to look out for. It's happening in Athens on April 10th. The event is shaping up. We've been adding speakers to the website, and we'll share the schedule there soon. As always, this is invite-only, and space is limited. There is an application process, and you need to apply to be eligible for a ticket. If you've already received an invite to buy your ticket, be sure to secure it. We expect the event to sell out. I've added the link in the show notes if you still want to get an application in. Hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Alio is a new layer one blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. Driven by a mission for a truly secure internet, Alio has interwoven zero-knowledge proofs into every facet of their stack, resulting in a vertically integrated layer one blockchain that's unparalleled in its approach. Alio is ZK by design. Dive into their programming language Leo and see what permissionless development looks like offering boundless opportunities for developers and innovators to build ZK apps. This is an invitation to be part of a transformational ZK journey. Dive deeper and discover more about Alio at alio.org. And now here's our episode. Today I'm here with Omer, the CEO of Ingonyama, and Yuval, Chief Architect. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you, Anna. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Anna. It's great to be here. So today, I think we're going to be diving back into the hardware topic. But before we do that, Ingonyama, the name Ingonyama, I feel like we should say what that is. It's one of the most unusual names in our space. Just tell me, what does the name Ingonyama mean? Where does this come from? Yeah, so there's the origin story and there's like, what does it mean? Uh, I think that by now, the association is with the Lion King, right? I mean, originally it's like coming from Zulu language. It's like from South Africa, it means lion, right? Uh, therefore, they are mentioned in, in the Circle of Life and, and throughout like the Lion King. Um, we recently shared, like we recently announced the company uh, funding and then we kind of like checked that in Google search, we kind of like dethroned, like when you ser- search for Ingunyama, it used to be the Lion King. <laughs> now it's like, you know, our website, our GitHub, our Twitter nice. and so on. It's like all the way to like, the, the uh, YouTube video is like number nine or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it took me a bit of time to, to get used to the name, but actually a funny thing that happened two weeks ago, I went to the Lion King in London. Yeah. And I actually noticed every time they said Ingonyama, <laughs> it's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wait, is it in the song Ingonyama? So I'm not going to sing, not going to embarrass myself and... Uh, <laughs> 
lower the rate of your audience uh, <laughs> but, but basically in the circle of life like the song which is known by like 99 of you know world population they mention it 30 something like 36 times when you try to okay. try to think to yourself like you know at least the beginning right so they kind of like say it repeatedly like over and over again so it's like wow. <laughs> it's like in your subconscious in a way like everybody like heard it, heard it at some point in, it. in life <laughs> wow that's so cool well thank you for sharing that with us i've been very curious for a long time Okay, let's kick off. Omer, you've been on the show before. You were on a few years ago, but you were talking about a completely different, well, maybe not completely different, a different topic, a different project. You were on for Zengo at the time, and we were talking about MPC and threshold cryptography. I'm really curious, like, yeah, what's what's happened since then and, and what made you make that shift over to ZK? and ZK hardware specifically. Indeed, uh, it was uh, three years ago, also with uh, ZK God Frederick uh, on the show. And- um, <laughs> My old co-host for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, and and uh, I had a lot of fun talking about like all these crazy ideas with, with threshold cryptography. And um, indeed it was as uh, part of my role at, at, at Zengo. I was uh, doing a lot of research, a lot of innovation, a lot of open source uh, cryptography. Uh, which is very rewarding and, and again like also you get to work with uh, people uh, all around uh, that are really talented and dedicated to the goal of like decentralization and, and, and security and, and privacy and all of that. Uh, at some point I needed to uh, be aware of the context which is a consumer company and I felt that I kind of like gave it everything that I can give and it's kind of like uh, I mean in a way I'm, I'm like a uh, founder for the early stages of, of that company. So I felt that like mm. the ship is moving without me now and I can let go and, and I guess optimize uh, on what should I do next. Uh, the move to hardware and zero knowledge uh, is actually very linear, right? So ZK and PC both are like part of privacy enhancing technologies, these PTs, pets. ZK is being used quite a lot extensively in, 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 in MPC. Mm. And uh, it's also a very fundamental kind of ID. So it was always there for me. It was no strangers to, to ZK tech. It also had a very uh, clear opportunity. And uh, hardware is, is, you know, for me working in open source software, uh, hardware is just taking it one step uh, farther, like have more, like another dimension, like more freedom uh, to design and build systems the way that they should be built. Uh, so it, it made a lot of sense. And, and other than that, basically the other, other things remain the same right so we i chopped the consumer part kind of like kept it at the infrastructure focus on on where i'm passionate about and 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 that was it right so that, that's the overall idea but um the way that things played out is that i needed some conviction at the beginning so it's not just like you come up with this idea it was not even my idea so justin drake was advising us uh, i think was the the one that I uh, was in charge of the inception, mm. uh, but also many others. Uh, and the more I thought about it, the more it like made perfect sense. It's like uh, inevitable, like any technology that disrupt uh, and become like mainstream need to have this kind of like leg of, of for hardware. Mm -hmm. That's interesting you mentioned Justin, because I remember having him on years and years ago for like VDFs. And then there was this conversation about these VDF hardware pieces. 
And I know I want to bring this up later on. Justin recently shared on Twitter that there's some sort of ZK ASIC that exists. That's cool, though, that like that conversation was happening back then. What else was it, though, about ZK? Because like you said, you know, ZK and MPC are sort of under the same umbrella. Was there something specific about the ZK space that made you decide to take that track? Indeed, there is a reason why we focused on ZK. When you think about it, what we do is basically the intersection, walk at the intersection of uh, hardware, hardware, software, co-design and uh, mathematics. Uh, and, and whatever we do can be applied to ZK, fully homomorphic encryption, FAG. And, and even in the future, maybe MPC, like there are some parts of MPC that can be accelerated as well. Now, when you start a company, you also need to think where's the, where's the market, right? Where people are building, what they're building and so on. And it was very clear that ZK, you know, yeah, ZK, you know, four decades into the making in terms of research, uh, let's say a decade or so, uh, more or less, when it comes to engineering, software engineering, it was a very, uh, and you see this kind of like products coming out and, and actually making difference, like, you know, on, on, on real world uh, and users. So it was more appealing to us to start from that technology mm. and also the blockchain Web3 market. That's where the action is, basically. Yeah. Cool. Yuval, I want to hear a little bit about your story. It's the first time you're on the show. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you were doing before and what led you to be interested in this problem. Right. Try and just give you a real brief intro of my background. Feel free to dig in. Um, so <laughs> sure. I'm an electrical engineer. I have a PhD in information theory in the context of communications. Been working in the industry for nearly 25 years. Which industry? Well, I worked at two uh, uh, large semiconductor companies, Texas Instruments and Broadcom. Uh, very many startups, a stint in the defense industry. I did mostly modems, physical layer, basically like everything from research algorithms all the way to uh, Verilog uh, designing and also system. And uh, a little bit of time I spent uh, on algorithmic trading, high frequency and also not so high frequency. <laughs> So you've touched a lot of different things that would contribute to you working in this industry now, it sounds like. I think so. It's It gives me, um, I guess, some advantages, but also there, there are also disadvantages, right? Because I haven't really been a computer scientist uh, and pr like specifically in this field uh, for very long. So mm. I, I think getting into this field about two years ago, uh, Danny, who's who's also uh, uh, co-founded uh, Ingonyama with uh, Omer, called me up. Now, he knows me from way back at Texas Instruments, and he said, um, do you want to join us? And mm. then I think maybe like 15 minutes later, I, I was already on a call with Omer, and he <laughs> explained what ZKP was and... I think it was pretty immediate for me. I mean, like it was just very exciting to get into this new world. Nice. So I want to talk a little bit about the story of Ingonyama after founding. So you had the idea, Omer, and you were saying you were kind of talking with Justin Drake. You were sort of thinking of the next direction. You landed on something hardware. So I, I've been saying hardware, but actually, how does Ingonyama define itself 
at the moment? Like, what exactly did you set out to build? And has that changed over the last few years? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so it didn't change much. Uh, but on the other end, it changed quite a lot, right? So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, first thing you need to understand about hardware is that cycles are um, like, you know, they're very slow. It's not like software. Mm. Um, it takes time. Like you need to develop expertise. You need to build some kind of IP. Even what, you know, the, the programming part like is is just longer uh, in, in, in general. So originally we thought about Ingoniama as kind of like um, a very traditional semiconductor company in the sense that you have an ASIC as a target uh, and you just go and, and build this ASIC. There are a few steps you need to take along the way. Like you need to, again, develop your uh, IP cores. You need to emulate, simulate, run FPGAs uh, that would kind of like show you how it's going to work, build some software stack on top, find some customers, and, and basically scale from, from that point, right? So one ASIC follows uh, another ASIC uh, design, improving with technology, process, um, and also just the architecture, uh, perhaps. I don't know, you can think about other semiconductor companies like NVIDIA today, where this is kind of like, you know, the way that they uh, push products, like every, let's say, six months, one year, you have like mm. a new ASIC coming up. Now, like the starting point was basically let's break down ZK into the like components that need to be, uh, that we want to accelerate. And then um, let's figure out a way to accelerate those in hardware. Uh, mm. You know, stuff that we are familiar, you are familiar with, MSM, NTT, you know, all of these like massive building blocks. Uh, back then, uh, I had this like um, talk that I gave, or we call it like there's MSM, there's NTT, and there's fluff, right? Now, one thing that uh, we learned is, is that's a bit misleading because like the fluff is important and also the you know the being application specific is important being uh, attuned to what like the community the ecosystem actually need is also important and and also making hardware available like now and accessible is is, is also important so it means that for us um while we still walk in the same traje trajectory, like we mm -hmm. have now much more mature understanding of ZK, uh, we have kind of like IP that is like sitting on the shelf. And now we started not long ago just to build actual designs out of it that can lead to ASIC designs that can solve like a real world problem. We also figured out that the approach would be kind of like end to end. So you want to put everything into the hardware, everything you can. And preferably, you even want the design to start by considering the hardware, like, you know, doing it backwards, meaning you already have a system, whatever, some Halo 2 proving system. Now let's try to find ways to accelerate it is much less effective than trying to accelerate or trying to build like hardware first, hardware friendly, let's call it um, ZK Prover. Uh, so we've, we've taken this approach. Uh, at some point, we've realized that GPUs provide a lot of advantages. They are like easy to come by, like commodity hardware, uh, almost uh, very cheap, easy to program, and and provide you a lot of like value. Meaning that you can get quite a lot of acceleration at a good price while uh, like just using GPUs, like almost just by plug and play. So we've had some focus, or we we've been focusing also on on, on that, right? So I guess like we do have a few branches 
of work. Yeah. Um, definitely the roadmap leads to ASICs. That's the way that ZK should run. But we still want to also address pain points and uh, solve problems and, and, you know, enable ZK today for different type yeah. of use cases and, and different customers. That's cool. So you've just mentioned a few things that I, I think our listeners may be familiar with, but I do want to just do a throwback to an episode that we did last year all about ZK hardware and hardware acceleration, because some of the terms like FPGA, GPU, ASIC, the MSM, the NTTs, like just how these things relate to one another, all of this was covered in that show. So I'll definitely add the link in the show notes. I really like what you were saying, though, about like it was almost like ASIC is your North Star. It's like that's the aim. But to get there, and this is what I've sort of heard all the time, is like since ZK proving systems change, since there's different flavors for different purposes or trends almost in some of the research. And like you're seeing things pop up, you know, at times monthly, like a new proving system that's super exciting. When you start to think about an ASIC, which is so concrete and sort of final in a way, like it's not as malleable as, say, an FPGA. Is it very difficult to do that in such an environment? Like if things are changing, can you ever really be sure that you're building something for the right system? Uh, you're right with this insight. There's like, or at least what we thought can be a way to overcome it is by having something which is like a programmable ASIC, mm. right? So like you're building a computer that um, can do many things, but um, is more suitable for the type of arithmetic used in, in ZK and cryptography, like finite field arithmetic. So that's the notion of ZPU, which we try to develop and then push. And till today, we use it as kind of like, you know, when we think about how to design a general purpose ASIC, again, I, I know the name is, is like kind of like uh, uh, as, as a contradiction in it, but uh, yeah. still that that's the model we've been trying to, to push so that you can, in a way, handle different provers, protocols, and accelerate all successfully. I think th this goes back to the talk at ZK10. The talk that you gave. Yeah, that I gave. Yeah, but but others helped me uh, build it. <laughs> well, we'll add the link in the show notes for folks to watch it. I okay. did watch that in yeah. prep for this. So, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Yuval. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that um, there was an argument that I tried to make there that is, um, I, I think it sort of gives context to, to everything that, that you were talking about just now, like hardware it's like an evolution. Like you mentioned, the North Star is is some ASIC that is like exactly what we need. But mm -hmm. to get there, we sort of have to have these like sort of steps of like we produce new hardware and then uh, we use that hardware to experiment. Then we get new ideas. Then we get new algorithms. Then we need new hardware. And it's sort of mm -hmm. and it just doesn't happen without that process. I, I think that's just our thought process. Like we need to be able to experiment. And I think that that what you're seeing, like that maturity that Omer mentioned before, is that it, it's basically us going through this evolution, I guess, with the rest of the industry and we're just adapting. So like the details change, but we're still going in the same direction. How is a programmable ASIC or the ZPU different from an FPGA? Because I always thought of the FPGA as the programmable ASIC. Like, isn't it sort of like 
between a GPU and an ASIC, you have the FPGA, which is malleable, but like, I don't know, you have to be a bit more specific, whereas GPU or CPU are more and more general purpose, but less specified? I, I think, first of all, all hardware, right, CPU, GPU, FPGA, ZPU, whatever it may be, it, it's they're all ASICs, right? Because they're just different machines built into silicon. So I think if, if we try to sort of rank them, maybe FPGA and its likes that there are also other uh, like older things like CPLDs and, and other types of programmable, really like programmable hardware at the at the gate level. Maybe they're the easiest to, to reprogram, but there is a very high cost associated with it. It's an extremely uh, uh, high-powered device. Um, mm. If I compare it to a very targeted ASIC, if I target a specific protocol, right, then, then the actual silicon area that I will spend on a certain function, because I know exactly how it needs to be, so I don't need all these interconnect that I'm not going to use, I'll just throw it mm -hmm. out. And, and so the area goes down uh, as a result, the power goes down. So I get a very specific ASIC, but that ASIC can only do one thing, right? Mm -hmm. It cannot be an FPGA. I can't now take it and program it for something entirely different. So I, I think that's, that's the way to look at it. And actually in that context, uh, a GPU, is from our perspective also a programmable device, mm -hmm. maybe not as programmable as an FPGA, but it is a programmable device. And we think that it's actually a little bit more suitable for the work type that, that you know, ZKP and, and FAG and those technologies are currently uh, using. Do you then put, because I always had the order of like CPU, GPU, FPGA, ASIC, but what you're sort of saying is that like, GPU is programmable, but less programmable than an FPGA. And then ASIC is extra less programmable. And would you put then the ZPU between GPU and ASIC in terms of its programmability? Actually, I have uh, on one of the slides, I'm actually looking at it now. But <laughs> this I is have, from your uh, talk. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, cool. I'm sorry that I can't show it, but I, I sort of put all of these devices on a two-dimensional grid of uh, flexibility versus uh, power or, or mm. power per security, per bit of security. And so actually I bunched CPU and GPU and FPGA on the high flexibility, but actually high power and a very, very customized ASIC that maybe only does a specific protocol would be very inflexible, but very low power. And I think that the, the ZPU tries to be somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Okay. So it tries to be low power, but it also tries to provide you with sufficient functionality to cover maybe a range of protocols. Is this because like ZKPs, even if you're using different systems, proving systems, there still is sort of something underneath that is becoming more clear and optimizable that does power all of these systems? Is that why one could create something like this? Um, I would say it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. I, I mean, I, I don't know if, but I guess we haven't 
yet finalized um, like how wide or how flexible the CPU will be. But I think that whatever we decide to put in, that the protocols will also, if this is good enough, then the protocols will also sort of target that, right? Like they'll mm. change the prime field because they can actually get an added value and that's what they've got. So I, I think I supporting everything um, would not be a good operating point. You would want to mm -hmm. support something that would be sufficient to give enough flexibility, but but also not too much. Mm. How expensive is it or how much work is it to get that first iteration that you could actually use? Is it something that a small team can do in a month or two months? You can try something out, test it out, people could use it? Or yeah, what are the cycles like? How expensive is it? I'm just curious how you think about this. The ASIC process actually starts off with maybe an architecture stage where you, you first of all need to know what you're about to design, right? And, and that's that's very fundamental. So, so actually, we usually think of like the ASIC process as starting from that point from which we know what we're about to build. So, lots of ASICs follow a standard, like a Bluetooth ASIC, right? So you know what you're going to build. Now, you've got a few stages. You've got the front end, it's sometimes called, where you actually write the Verilog. And, and you do quite a lot of verification. And, and actually, the verification is, is extremely, extremely important in ASICs. It's where you spend most of the time. Uh, and then that goes over to the backend process where things actually start being moved from code to something more physical. And then you'll have uh, other types of verification where you actually verify gate level stuff. Uh, you do power uh, type of simulations. Um, there are various stages and it takes probably in in like the most advanced technologies uh, to get your initial test chips from the minute you you kick off the design would mm -hmm. probably take about two years that that's like the oh, wow. yeah and then if you're lucky then your first tape out is already something that that works a lot of times uh, you do need to go to a maybe not a second tape out there's sometimes there's stuff that you can uh, fix in in what's called uh, metal fixes which is a little bit uh, less expensive and a little bit quicker and uh, getting I guess getting from there to like general availability is is, is another process that I'm I'm not as you know uh, okay um, but the, that two-year period you've gone through this I guess you like know what that's like yeah first yeah about the two years so just as an example, you know, the chip that, um, like recently, there was this uh, announcement from, from uh, Exil about uh, ZK Snark uh, ASIC. Mm -hmm. So they actually started to work on, on this chip before we started the company, before we started in Gonyam. Oh, wow. Right? It's a long process. It's also an expensive one. I can tell you that when we now think about uh, taping out Alio uh, Prover, uh, like an ASIC, we're talking here about something like twenty million dollars oh. to get it, uh, you know, total cost. So that, that that can be also very expensive. Now there are ways to mitigate or ways to take it, you know, step by step. So as I was saying, one thing is just to have the IP 
and and stop there so you don't do the full process mm-hmm. uh you don't need to spend all this money someone needs to do that right but they will just take the ip from us the ip call from us they would i don't know, license it or something you know and that's a big part of the work by the way i mean you know that all of the design process and and uh yeah. and testing and such can can also be done there and, and it can be done on, on fpgas right so for example with the zpu id there is this kind of like processing element that is kind of like being replicated uh, all across the silicon. So you take one of these and then you implement it you at the very log and you implement it in FPGA and then you can test it with different inputs and so on, see that like it uh, obeys the, you know, your design and, and what you predicted that it would, it would like the performance and so on. Mm. Is that a lot of the work in designing these? Like kind of, Yuval, what you had sort of described as you're coming up with an idea you then do these verifications, and I'm guessing like lots and lots of tests. So is it sort of like, here's the idea, here's the implementation, and then you just like try to battle test it? So, so I don't think that you're not battle testing the architecture, right? That's like a, a pre-stage. But the verification would test the actual silicon to see that you've uh, actually implemented it correctly. So it's a lot of corner cases, um, uh-huh. a lot of coverage. They've basically taken uh, a lot of uh, know-hows from uh, formal verification uh, that was done for ASICs to actually uh, verify these protocols. Not not as in like CK verification, but but make sure that the protocols are, are secure, that they're mm-hmm. uh, foolproof. Most of their verification that we're talking about is to make sure that you've implemented what you wanted to implement. By the way, there's also a validation stage that is post-silicon where you're actually testing the silicon to see that it also meets everything. You screen the silicon, you know, you'd have like uh, certain devices that are close to the edge of, of, uh, you know, the the actual like physical material that function a little bit differently. um, That's interesting. So what you're saying, though, is that like this verification that you mentioned is less like battle testing, but more like kind of in the spirit of formal verification, just like mapping it out, making sure it runs the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And especially testing corner cases. That's the important Mm. thing there. I don't know that I've heard that part of the story, the time frame, the cost, the sort of the process. I want to go back, Omar, to what you were saying, though, about like licensing. If you're a small company, you create the IP, you create the design. Would this almost be something that like NVIDIA or AMD would like? Because they have, I guess, all of the supply chain, right? Like they have the chip manufacturers and they like I'm assuming they can do really quick iteration or like faster physical hardware iterations. Yeah, exactly. As, as you were saying, I mean, for us, like what you need to understand is, is you know, small company, betting on a chip and failing mm-hmm. means the end of the company yeah like it's it's a one-shot thing <laughs> now let, let's take a you know uh, uh continue the example from 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 alio let's say we work with bitmain right so bitmain do mainly bitcoin asics and they are really good mm-hmm. at the supply chain like they can take design so you, we save them all the trouble of understanding what zk even means right mm-hmm. uh, hypothetically speaking but let's say they take the design and just like go through the it's like tape out process um, all the way to you know sales and distribution, which is critical also, right? Uh, and for them, it's like super efficient. They already have everything in place. We, for us, it's gonna be first time, everything gonna be slower, more prone to errors, 
and and so on. So definitely there's like a good point for collaboration here uh, between us and these type of companies. That's interesting. Just recently, Justin Drake, who we just mentioned a few times previously, kind of tweeted this picture of what seems to be a ZK ASIC. I'm just curious, like, yeah, what is the landscape like for other people trying to build that? What do you make of that tweet? I don't know if, if there's much more to the announcement there, but yeah. So first, I think it's big, right? Again, we're talking here about uh, probably a process that started a couple of years ago uh, and cost a lot of money. And it also can be like, you know, a game changer, right? So again, using my example of, of Alio, like Prover, if you put this like ZK Snark chip uh, into play, it would uh, basically be game over for GPUs or any other thing, any other hardware in this network until you have competing ASICs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's kind of like our uh, assumption. And it's also probably the first ASIC that is like following this like design pattern of becoming, of being programmable, uh, like the ZPU concept. Uh, it's not going to be the last one, right? So uh, we know that other companies are planning and probably will also launch like even this year, uh, 2024, uh, this type of ASICs. It's kind of like now, I guess, the, the standard uh, since again, like there are so many protocols and you don't really know what you are aiming for, uh, then then everybody is, is like going for you know one kind of uh, general purpose ZK processor. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the fact that this can be used like across different protocols, it's very interesting. And one last thought, I would actually say that the first ZK ASIC was by uh, was from Super National as part of this VDF that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So they actually done a VDF ASIC that includes a Nova Prover um, or whatever uh-huh. you need for a Nova Prover. Yeah. So I would say that would be the, that was the first, although it's now kind of uh, obsolete. Uh, but yeah, I think it's huge. I think it's like also very surprising. Like one of the uh, impressive things in, 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 in this like tweet is you know the speed, right? The fact that we are already uh, at the age of, of ZK ASICs, it's, it's here. That's very cool. Um, in that case, he talks about it like ending Ethereum fragmentation. Um, I actually am curious, today we know about ZK rollups, we know that there's proving happening, there's computation being used to create zero-knowledge proofs. How does it work today? And how would an ASIC change that? potentially like yeah maybe just paint the picture for like what a sequencer or or prover on a roll up is doing and who it is and how many machines and where it lives <laughs> i'm leading yeah, you in a direction <laughs> uh, so so first first uh, I'm, I'm far from from an expert and and justin drake definitely is is you know much more qualified to talk about it and he's talking about like this future of, of ethereum um, but in the context of, of ZK provers and specifically, you know, very fast, low latency ZK provers, which is something you can achieve with an ASIC. So what you want to achieve is that these rollups would be able to communicate like between themselves, but in, in this atomic uh, way, right? So you want to enable this like MEV and all of these other things that we have today, um, but happening across rollups. And the way to do it 
is by kind of like, you know, selectively taking the transactions that are relevant from different like L2s. By the way, it doesn't like matter if it's ZK rollup or optimistic rollup, just like taking these like transactions and 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 like proving them and, and, and have them like in, in, in this like one proof. And for that, you need to have relatively or extremely low latency mm. uh, so that this can happen like in, in this manner. Uh, so today it's indeed like each rollup can be thought about it as, as his own island, right? Like with their own set of smart contracts uh, where there are some, I mean, I know Justin and, and others are also trying to have this idea of having like Ethereum as the base layer, allowing more of like joint state uh, in, in a way mm. and, and of obviously shared sequencers, but but still like they are very like different and, and independent. Having ZK is probably, and, and that's, uh, by the way, I think it's, it's, might be the only place I know that ZK is like, it's like the only way to do it. Like if mm. you actually want to achieve this real time cross chain communication, you do need like ZK that would run very fast. I don't know, Yuval, maybe you want to add something. Um, what Omer said is, is I think it's what we call the bridges, right? Where really you simply cannot do them without having low enough latency. I would say that also just the rollups themselves um, at some point, and it really depends on on how how much we want to scale uh, blockchain or how much we want to scale Ethereum. Because I, I think that if we look at the pricing, right, um, if we look at just L1, transactions are expensive. Now a rollup takes a whole lot of transactions and and rolls it up into a single transaction. So now that cost is amortized across many roll-up transactions, but all of a sudden we've got new costs. So one of the costs is running these proofs, um, but perhaps a more significant cost at this point is then storing all of these transactions mm -hmm. because they still need to be stored. So, so maybe they don't get stored on like the main storage, they currently get stored, if I'm correct, into something called logs, at least in Ethereum, which is a little bit less expensive. But I think that that, that is currently the bottleneck. That is why at the current state, ZK rollups don't scale more than, than they actually do. And they actually don't scale mm. very much at, at this point. Um, I think once that barrier goes down, and I know it's it, it should go down in Ethereum, I think that's the whole tank shading thing is meant to bring that cost down. But then I think the next barrier, if we want to scale even more, would again be power, right? So we have to bring down like the power per proof. Otherwise, we'll get stuck mm -hmm. there. I think one other piece of this puzzle, like because I just did an interview with Celestia and also with Avail and with Eigen, like the DA narrative, I think takes some of that weight off. It's almost like you're reducing all of the other latency and cost so that all of a sudden that ZKP and the actual time it takes and everything becomes the bottleneck. But so far it's not that, I guess, right? That's not our impression, actually. Uh, it is yeah. already? I had this, our impression... Now I had a very interesting conversation with uh, with someone from Ingoniama, with Oren, um, and uh, we we think that currently the the bottleneck is is the storage cost. Okay. Um, of the rollups and and actually not the the cost of proving, but it will become the bottleneck. Yeah. Eventually, but I think that follows right? 
that that follows what I was saying that it's not currently, yeah. but but there's these ways that they're going to be reducing other yeah. costs, yeah, and then eventually. Uh, I might even take it, you know, into a more controversial uh, opinion. Is it's not just it's not now the bottleneck. Might be that it's never going to be the bottleneck with ZK rollups, you know, as like standalone L2s. That that was I was trying to say is that it might manifest itself like ZK ASICs more in this like atomic bridges. But with rollups, you know, they are so complex systems. And even if you take just like ZK proof, you already, you know, we have a huge bottleneck just at the witness generation part, like that, that is also important to mention. Now you also add to that, like the sequencer, which is also a bottleneck. And just again, like generally speaking, most of the cost today in, in a rollup goes to this like on-chain fees. Mm. Um, and when I say most, it's like, you know, 90%. Mm. And even out of this 10% cost that you have like for this, like running this infrastructure, provers like can be very small percentage, maybe maybe one, 2% out of this um, like total cost of, of operating your rollup. So I'm not sure, I mean, at which point in time, depends, I mean, how uh, we didn't see rollups yet, like, you know, become like fully decentralized at this point. So it's hard to predict how this will play out because there might be that provers would have like a more important role. Maybe some prover networks would start to to emerge. But at least now when we have this like stage where they are like mostly centralized, I don't think that like rollup operators think too much about, like we, we know exactly how much they think about provers. So I'm saying that I'm not sure <laughs> that's like the bottleneck. And if that's like, you know, yeah. when they think about improving it, of course it's, impro it's important to improve that as well as other parts of the system, just not, saying that, oh, this is where ASICs should come in handy, right? Oh, yeah, we yeah, have yeah. to have ASICs, otherwise our rollup is not going to work, right? I mean, you just touched on a bunch of topics that I think are really relevant today. Um, the prover marketplace, the shared sequencer. Like, the thing is, those things need more adoption for us to see how the economics play out if they work. And yeah, if at some point a chip or acceleration would, would actually help in that way. You just also mentioned, though, the centralization of the rollup. I kind of want to dig in on that because when I talked about, like, where is the proofs happening? What, like, where are most, like, ZKPs being created? How does it work today? Yeah, t take, like, one company. can be uh, any of the leading ZK rollups. And they basically operate everything, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not just the sequencer and the prover. It's also, you know, the... Uh, I guess the explorer, right? Like you need this kind of like features in 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 a chain so that like it would be active and and uh, and usable. Um, so they basically run everything, and you as a user usually you don't interact directly with the rollup, right? So you kind of like do like there's like I can build an application I don't know on top of Scroll, zk sync whatever. And mm -hmm. my application would interact with the rollup smart contracts. Yeah. Um, it can be, I don't know, for example, with ZK Sync, like the most popular app uh, is like a swap thing. I guess they found a way to make swaps like really fast and also cheap. So I, I can do this kind of like swap thing uh, with some third party, with liquidity providers, whatever, like this entire like unrelated to rollup. Eventually, I'm going to settle using the rollup. Uh, and they're going to collect all of these transactions, right? And and as, as you were said, so basically batch all of those into this like single transaction uh, on, on Ethereum. 
And this like on-chain fees is actually expensive, right? That's kind of like, uh, as I said, like a big part of the expenses. So it depends, right? So some rollups are using some kind of like cloud-based services yeah. um, today, right? Can be AWS, can be uh, GCP to run provers. Um, they can also do it on-prem. So today we also have uh, companies that are doing this like rollups, uh, provers, like just with their own servers. And, and, and that's fine. Uh, allows you maybe a bit more flexibility with your setup, more control. Mm. And yeah, I mean, What's they the pay, it means that they... Prim? On-prem, on-premise. Like, like you know, on, you, on your own hardware. Yeah. Oh, on your own hardware. Okay, okay. Sorry, I didn't... Yeah, I didn't... yeah. Just like your own hardware versus to, like, uh, use some instance in, in the cloud. Uh, so we see both. And um, we also see both CPUs and GPUs, right? So ZK Sync, for example, they are heavily relying on GPUs for the prover. It's like already very optimized for GPUs. Um, others can be going in that direction. Uh, eventually, I believe everyone would use like specialized hardware just because, again, it saves power. It's like a better, a, most efficient, a more efficient way to cut costs. So that's kind of like how all of the infrastructure there is working. But yeah, it's centralized, like operated by, by the ZK operator, the ZK operator. Talking about the marketplaces, that's definitely an attempt to decentralize the proving action. Would something that you folks build, like maybe maybe you design it and someone else produces it, but like, is that where you could imagine the Ingonyama hardware being used or the ZPUs being used? It's a trend. Like uh, I see yeah. a lot of companies now um, trying to build in that direction. And in, in a marketplace, you need to have you have two sides and here you actually have three right so you have uh maybe four i don't know let's let's count together so you have the <laughs> the consumer like the one that actually requests uh, a proof like i need this thing to be like yeah. zk pid there's the the hardware provider okay so today we don't have marketplaces that running in this like whatever like hyperscalers we don't have this um, marketplaces running in, in, in with hyperscalers or, or someone needs to provide hardware mm-hmm. on the other end and should be rewarded uh, um, for, for, you know, letting people use the hardware. And then you also need the algorithm, right? And, and that's where I guess Ingonyama plays a role, right? And, and I guess the fourth player is the one that actually build the marketplace, right? Think about uh, exchange, right? So someone needs to build the software for the exchange. So someone needs to build the software for the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, when it's becoming decentralized, it's becoming this network that someone needs to, to design and, and, and test and, and, and then deploy and, and so on. And uh, it's, it seems like a very promising idea, I have to say. Although when you try to, we just enumerated this like four different uh, participants. When you try to think who's falling into each slot, it's not yet clear again, like who's asking for proofs, like who's going to use mm-hmm. this type of like marketplace form, like asking for proofs, who's going to provide the hardware. So definitely they're like, you know, let's say I, I have GPUs, um, so it might be a good alternative, but you need to come up with the incentive mechanism and, and so on. Like it's 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 a bit of a challenge. And and even even for us, I mean, maybe I can do some, uh, let, let's say that uh, I'm providing some algorithm for this marketplace, like making it available for the marketplace, but um, I'm keeping another algorithm, which is better um, to myself. <laughs> Yourself. <laughs> Right. And you're also running this yourself, probably. And then, and then I run it myself, <laughs> yeah. right? So how do you make sure uh, you need the incentives in place? How do you make sure that I'm incentivized to provide 
uh, or to compete with others on providing the best algorithm, right? So it's, it's, there are like tons, tons of questions around that. The only thing right now we have like abundance of is this like teams trying to build the software, the network for the marketplace, mm-hmm. which is, I would say, important, but it's, it cannot work alone. Um, so I'm definitely thinking it's important and it might play out and there's definitely room for such a network. I'm not sure if like too many such networks, but it can make sense. But it, it's still very early to say, right, we still need to kind of like try to see the full like flow happening, how everything falls into place. Like I need this to happen and, and like, you know, uh, the other yeah. player needs that to happen and so on. How the, everything like fits mm. in. You mentioned that Ingonyama could build the algorithm or be the the part of this or the sort of the participant that brings an algorithm. Is that also something that you do today? And is that similar to the work you talked about in terms of designing a chip? Right. So I guess I was mostly referring to how this would look like using GPUs, which today are available and you can have access to a lot of them, right? Like you have a lot of data centers just dedicated to GPUs mm-hmm. and they are programmable, right? Uh, we do a lot of work on GPUs. So definitely we can fit in there with algorithms. Um, if you also add ASICs to this marketplace equation, so ASICs can be very specialized as uh, Yuval pointed out, right? So it can be uh, I don't know, an Alio ASIC, kind of like using my example here, uh, which means that it's like coming with the software built in, right? Like you don't yeah. need the algorithm. It's already like, you know, it, it can do only one thing. It can also be this like ZPU type of an ASIC, which can run uh, different algorithms. And, you know, might be that we'll see that once you have enough ASICs in the market, people would start exploring them, coming up with algorithms for these ASICs. Um, and also with like software implementation for these algorithms. Uh, so it kind of like gonna become like a ZPU is another type of GPU that you can program and put into the marketplace and make some kind of like profit out of. Got it. Maybe just going back to Ingonyaman sp- specifically, are you working on those two fronts in parallel then? Are you on one side working on like the design side of a, of a chip, but then also on the algorithms that work best on GPUs? Uh, yes, you can say that. Uh, we do have uh, work on GPU that can be used today by, by anyone. Um, and we have also this like long-term work about on, on, on ASICs, right? I'm not saying that the first one would be like the ZPU itself, but, but we definitely do a lot of experimentations and, and iterations as, as we pointed out to make uh, hardware, um, to make it real, like to actually take, yeah. you know, ASICs and, and, and bring them to, to the world. Also, I, I, I would say that the GPU work that we do also complements the hardware process because um, we learn a lot by using uh, GPUs. We learn what to do, what not to do. So, so it's complementary to, to the silicon process. Cool. You've mentioned in talks and in tw- on Twitter, Icicle. Can you explain what that is exactly? Is that on the algorithm side? So Icicle, it's, it's, first it's an open source library and uh, it was meant to allow developers to tap into GPUs, okay? So today it's, it's NVIDIA GPUs, so it's strictly CUDA based. We put emphasis on, on the API, so to make the, the developer experience extremely smooth and, and make developers happy. Mm. Uh, so the idea is that 
you know, the MSMs and NTT that uh, we talked about, like the most basic level of integration would be take ICL and then switch from CPU to GPU, specifically for MSM and NTT. Doing that for your protocol, as we've seen time and again, already gives you something. Like, like it, it gets you to a point where you have, like very quickly, you have something which is already uh, more performant than what you had before. Um, but it's only the starting point. So ICL can also allow you to do all of this like glue in between and all of the polynomial arithmetic that we have. And it, in theory, should be, uh, not in theory, also in practice, should allow like practitioners and also researchers to write like big chunks of their protocol in the GPU. Right now, we, we, we still, as an industry, as an industry, we, we are um, mostly focused around CPU. But if you look at AI, for example, no one is using CPUs. So everything, the conversation is, is around GPUs. How do you optimize yeah. GPUs? How do you do the engineering with GPUs? We try to do that, but for ZK, right? Mm -hmm. So ICL is, is just a way to get started and uh, to experiment and to get your system to a much better place than it is, but, but very, very quickly. I feel like when you talk about sort of the proving marketplace, but also this work when there's this competitive environment, the ASIC development, proving in general, like if you think of a lot of the consensus systems that we have, they're economic games of balance to be able to decentralize a network, right? And some of them work better than others. You know, some of them end up becoming quite centralized. But in this case, where you have this competition, like say we have a proving set up, prove like multiple people trying to prove or other hardware companies trying to enter the space. When I hear it, it almost sounds like you would keep a lot of the stuff that makes your prover super strong to yourself or like your algorithm to yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like you kind of mentioned that you'd release part of it, you'd release something, but you probably wouldn't release all of it. And I just wonder like how, how does a market like that work can you actually achieve that decentralized evenness if there's this hidden part yeah i i, I think well i mean obviously if there's enough competition then then that can break that right because if you keep it to yourself and someone else offers it then no one's going to come uh. to you but i don't know perhaps it can work economically but i think there is a to me there is another question if I get you to do my proving, then like I, I have to trust you to some extent, right? Because I, yeah. I I need to give you the source. So to me, that's that that's something that that needs to be answered. Maybe maybe that's where MPC comes in, but mm -hmm. it, it's another level of complication. Uh, I, I just wanted to emphasize that traditionally, semiconductor industry is extremely competitive and also extremely secretive. And, and we try to break it. We've been trying to like use a different model since we started the company. Now, I cannot tell you at this point how to win the market, but I know that we will fail if we keep these walls between us, right? Mm -hmm. So I know how to not win for sure. Um, <laughs> therefore, I mean, for us, transparency was and, it, and is critical, right? Everything we do, we try to communicate. Right? We were the first one to communicate this idea of ZPU Although I'm sure others, I know others are like thinking the same lines, uh, but it's important to bring this like uh, conversation, you know, to the to the public. Mm. The ICL that you mentioned, it's MIT licensed, open source. 
Uh, I think that very early on also we've realized, you know, you cannot win by saying I have the best MSM. I mean, it, it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. Like you just, if you have mm -hmm. something, it's, it's, uh, we call it sta table stakes, just like publish it, let others like, you know, let the research community explore it, improve it. Let's, let's go as a, as, as a community. Uh, so that, that was like key for us uh, as we grew and, and growing. I'm not sure what's going to happen in the future once we start to see this like, uh, modes and how it will, impact decentralization. I think you're making mm. a very, very important point here that we need to understand as, as, as an ecosystem. I like the way you put that to the moats. And I, and I almost wonder if it's because it's the hardware, which is these longer timeframes, way more investment, kind of colliding with the open source, decentralized nature of what we work on. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think so. I also want to go back, Yuval, to what you just said about the privacy of what's being proven, kind of. Like, I think that's what you were hinting at, where if you outsource a proving action to someone else, you definitely can't do that if you're trying to keep that thing secret, because they then would have the information and then prove on it. And I think it works well when it's like a scaling, when it's more about verification or validation of something. But on the privacy front... I mean, you can't share it unless, like you mentioned, you've already like wrapped it in an FHE or something like that. It has to already, yeah, some other cryptography must have happened on it. Yeah. I, I, I think perhaps it's even more than privacy because I, I can prove something entirely different to you know, <laughs> what you want me to prove, right? <laughs> I mean, you are right that it involves like some more advanced cryptography, um, but also just like when you what we see in other places you can also have something walking inside of a t right like a trusted execution environment True. and uh in fact nvidia came up with this confidential computing environment so in a way you can outsource the computation while maintaining privacy of your input uh to some kind mm -hmm. of like uh, nvidia gpu that's is, is that's running in, in the cloud uh, people are already using it, uh, although, as we know from history, every T um, gets broken. Is like, yeah, in, in a way. So it's 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 not bulletproof, um, but but it's another interesting direction to think. If anyone is kind of like sitting there trying to come up with some kind of like proof of concept, that would be very interesting to see. Hmm. Do you see a future where it would be more client side, where proving like maybe someone would use? some algorithm or some library that you've created and it would be actually happening yeah on on a phone on the client like where the person with the information could they be using more sophisticated provers you and myself we just were discussing like uh, a few days ago about the use cases for client-side proving and if we are ready like we, uh, i think that we both agree that um there's a future there like uh, you mentioned privacy is, is one reason there are other reasons, right? It's also, um, I can also give an example on how it solves scalability issue. I mean, there are, in, in gaming, for example, like there are good reasons to do that, but are we ready? Uh, do we need it like today? We're not sure. I mean, we, we were thinking uh, perhaps, you know, let's add support for Metal, which is our um, iOS, uh, also like, like Apple, uh, Mac has their own GPU and so on. So this is kind of like their way to program it, mm. um, mostly for graphics. But are, are we ready to also add support for that? Is it going to be useful? 
I think we talked with like the Jolt guys from A16Z, like that was like one interesting uh, uh, potential user for this tech. But but like the overall conclusion was, we are not there yet. We don't have like the privacy thing or like in general, like client set proving is, is not appealing enough today. But in the future, it's, it's definitely going to be part of like ZK landscape, like uh, no doubt about it. Do you think it would come from the outside or do you think it would be like Apple using ZKPs themselves? Like a tested sensor signing. We've been sort of talking about that on the show a little bit. I, I think that, um, that there are two things that you usually need for client side. So one of them is really you need to be extremely power efficient if you're going to run on a phone or or on a watch or on something like that. And that's stuff that we've been discussing. But I think for much of the client side applications, um, you also need some like sort of third party da- database, right? Like maybe you need to prove your identity, but proving your identity uh, is actually proving membership in some government database, right? Mm. So I, I think that for many of the client side applications, you also need that infrastructure. Otherwise, that there's nothing to prove. Well, we were, I mean, in our case, we're talking about more like the here it would be almost, you know, you take a photo, you want to prove that it's your photo from your phone at a certain moment. This is where you need a signature at the beginning of one of these like content journeys. We were talking about this a little bit last year with the attested sensor stuff. But um, that's where I think maybe a client side ZK proving something or other would be really cool. Because I know what you mean where it's like if you want like a passport or an identity, you're going to still need to figure out like how that's created in the first place. Yeah, we took it to uh, last year with this um, conversation about IoT, right? So imagine this like sensors, like camera sensors, like uh, doing some security stuff. But again, not just like for, uh, not necessarily at the station, I think was the the main use case here, but mostly about uh, saving storage, right? So instead of sending Mm. a lot of, uh, like these cameras are doing machine learning, right? At the edge. Like yeah. they need to detect some kind of like uh, anomalies, but the way to do it, they send a lot of like noise, like to some storage, like at the back office. So instead of sending all of this like garbage, you can just send the proof that over the last 10 hours, there was no event, right? So you save mm. a ton of storage, uh, making the sensors like cheaper and so on. We called it insights. So you actually send insights rather than, than the whole video. All of the info. Hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. it's a type of like safe compression, right? Because why would you believe me if I told you that, yeah, no, no one actually entered this gate in the last 10 hours, right? You'd yeah. believe a video typically because maybe that's hard to fake. Maybe maybe it's not so hard to fake anymore. With well, now AI. that's why you need the attested sensors and yeah, the signatures. Exactly. This is what we're Talks thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's fascinating though. Like, so in your case though, when you're even brainstorming about these client-side use cases, do you imagine the work you do today kind of ending up in that realm? Is that sort of a goal as well, like beyond just the ASIC goal? Is it like that people could actually use what you're building on that side? Um, yeah, I mean, both on the ASIC and on the GPU side, I would say that like it's it's somewhat of a goal, but um, we need a very clear use case. That was uh, that what I was hinting before, right? So I can imagine like a process, let's say we work with a company, I don't know, Nintendo, right? So Nintendo, they have like consoles 
um, client side, kind of like, you know, gaming devices, and mm. they have GPUs, and they have like full control over their stack, right? So you start with the GPU, you take like what you have, what we have with ICL, you kind of like port it to their uh, software stack and, 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 and hardware, and then it, lo- it, it works great, and they need this kind of like privacy disrupting technology to work like even like at the lower power so they say you know what let's do an asic right so then it it's it's like this evolution right it's like uh, just like what we described before is like taking step by step so then you move on and say okay let's do an asic together and just like you know push it into millions of like nintendo consoles <laughs> that would be cool <laughs> So I know we're getting close to the end of the episode, but I know you also have been releasing some interesting research papers and work. Tell me a little bit about what, yeah, what's coming out right now. What's the focus of the company today? I'm going to, I'm going to talk about two recent papers. Uh, I'm going to mention them and Yuval, you can like jump in and, and fill in the details. So one paper we released very recently is kind of like applying graph theory to this very large provers, like the ZK EVM provers that you see with Tycho and Skoll. And there, what we witnessed is that the memory is, is you know, even before compute, you have this like a lot of memory that you need to uh, to use. And, and that's becoming a bottleneck. Like you are stuck on just waiting for memory to be free. Hmm. So the naive idea was, can I take this prover and just like separate it into two smaller size provers? that can run independently in parallel, therefore cutting the memory requirement by half, moving the problem for memory to compute. And the way to do it was to kind of like saying, let's look, you know, you need to go way to the beginning of the protocol, kind of like see, imagine it as after arithmetization, it is kind of like table and kind of like trying to understand where you, you, you put the knife, right? Like where do you want to do the cut? And, and there's no natural place to do it, but if you add some redundancy, like if you pay a bit to kind of like increase the table size, um, then you do, you are able to, to kind of like cut it in, in, in kind of like equivalent to independent pieces, uh, or it can be more than two. It's like community detection. So it, it looks better on Tycho than it is on Skoll. And we try to understand also why. Mm. So that's like one work and quickly. The second one, the second paper we released is about some checks. So that's like first chapter of like a much broader, bigger project that we have about some checks. There I have to say that, you know, I have to admit that when Hyperplone came out, I was kind of like rushing to publish this blog post claiming i think the title the title was kind of like some checks are not hardware friendly hyperplonk is not hardware friendly something like this like you guys <laughs> like you just like you know you used a bunch of cool cryptography and math but it's not going to be used in the real world and i was wrong mm-hmm. so we now know many ways in which <laughs> in which this like some checks uh and, and that's like fascinating topic right and how these some checks can can be run in parallel can be run efficiently on GPU can be run in mm. like uh, like a lot of algorithmic improvements to that and and there's going to be much more released by us and others much more work on that topic going to be released by us and others in the upcoming weeks and months. You really want to to add anything? Yes. So maybe I'll I'll just add a little bit about some checks. So yeah. So so the question is really how how to get some check to be more parallel. And, and the, the main problem is that SumCheck is really, it's sort of like a funnel, right? You start off with a lot of computation that you can do. And then as you go through the rounds, you have less and less computation, but you cannot parallelize them because of um, you actually have this Piat-Shamir process 
um, and you actually need to complete a round before you can you can generate the the pseudo randomness for the next round. So you can start off very parallel, but then at some point you just get stuck. So so actually, sort of at, that's at the same time uh, we've been working with Justin Teller for a few months, and uh, and we actually took an idea from his uh, small fields paper that that. I think he hasn't officially released. It's on his website. Ooh. You know, some preliminary version of it, which, which we also have some work on, but but we'll leave that. Um, <laughs> For the it, next it'll one. come out at some point. <laughs> um, but we took an idea where we actually uh, separate, when you look at a subject protocol, you can actually separate the data from the challenges. The challenges are those random, uh, is that Fiat Shamir randomness that you're generating. And um, there is a cost associated when you separate uh, the data from the challenges, you actually increase the amount of data that you actually need to store quite significantly. Uh, and what we've seen is that if we use this hybrid sort of system where we start off with the standard subject protocol, we can uh, actually saturate the GPU but then at some point, we actually move on to the, the other uh, uh, implementation where we actually separate the data and the challenges. We do increase the storage costs, but now we can do a lot of computation on the data in parallel. And then at the end, we will have like this little tiny tail that sort of is, is a little bit inevitable, but but we do get like an, an overall better average time. Mm. So that's one work that uh, has been partially released uh, by uh, Kadik and Suyash. So they haven't um, actually uh, discussed the hybrid system yet, and, and that's coming uh, up, but, but they have discussed the two algorithms. And now we're actually starting to look at some folding schemes that uh, ah. I think are very exciting. Yeah, where we try to actually trade off again, instead of doing one big sum check, we're actually looking at splitting it into a few sum checks. And then we think we have a method where, where we can actually uh, uh, fold uh, everything so that the verifier, you know, just sees... Well, uh, you're splitting all the yeah. pins like... <laughs> Keep something. <laughs> You're spilling all okay. the beans. <laughs> anyway, it's Do you ideas. Want me to not say? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Everything is open source. Yeah. Like even the research. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there is a repository called Super Soundcheck. Uh, the the okay. you know the Halo Two uh, the Tycho yeah. thing is is open source. Uh, there is yeah. code. It's like you can you can use you can you can you know also collaborating with with academia on that yeah. and like uh, yeah EPFL is, is is in the loop and so on. So EPFL actually, uh, yeah, I don't know. We don't want to say too much because I know that they've got something cooking and uh, it's actually something very interesting that, that we haven't thought of. Um, but yeah, we, we, we'll we let them uh, uh, push it out. And uh, I think we're going to somewhat be involved with them on, on maybe implementation of that. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. I feel like when you talk about these techniques and then doing work on these techniques, and then you put it in this hardware context and actual speed and cost. I had Olvatana on, what is it, three months ago. We were talking about the Binius work, which they described as being created much more for like a hardware-friendly environment, 
would you put what you just described in that category as well? Like, are you thinking about it to work better with what you know about how architecture will be working? Like, is that what you're developing for? Yes, but I think that actually our process is quite fundamentally different. Okay. Um, I think that we actually try to take existing protocols, so to speak, and then we say, okay, what is wrong with them, right? Or not what is wrong with them, but like if I just naively put some check on a GPU, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't work well. Okay. So then what do I need to do, right? So, so we sort of try to, we, we try to evolve, right? We, we, we discussed it in the beginning. So, so we'll see the problem. We'll try and find a solution for it. And maybe eventually, you know, we'll get a new hardware for it. And then we'll do, we'll, we'll keep on doing these steps. So I, I don't think, we, we don't try to invent something entirely new. But eventually, yeah, like, the algorithmic work that we do uh, attempts to make the the protocol more hardware friendly to to like at the moment to this given hardware to the GPU. Mm. You can you can imagine how we're going to do the same for Binus, right? So there's <laughs> going to be like a software, maybe even hardware for Binus. We've done it for hardware, like you know we've improved other hardware implementation. So we're just going to wait for applications to come up and and understand how we can like evolve uh, and, and get the system to become like better performant. Doesn't matter for us, like if it's like Binus or other, I don't know, polynomial commitment scheme, prover and so on. Yeah, cool. I, I can give another example of the work that we're actually doing on small fields. So we've taken, I mean, Justin Taylor did, did this uh, incredible job on, on small fields and small fields is, is this idea of, um, of basically like I, I want to work with with like a smaller characteristic, but then how do I get the security? So I actually, I do the sum check on, on a small characteristic field, but then I, I, or, or I, I actually put my evaluations uh, on a hypercube that is in a small field, but then I sample somewhere very far out of that uh, field, I, I sample like the sum check protocol samples in some extension field, and that, that's how I get the security. And he's got this algorithm where he actually uh, splits up the challenges or the data and the challenges. And what we've noticed is that that split creates a lot of of data and a lot of data that needs to be stored uh, for very long before you start creating the challenges. And by using, I'm, I'm actually not going to spill the beans this time, um, by using <laughs> this very uh, uh, basic arithmetic uh, techniques, very well-known old stuff, uh, we've been able to actually shrink this storage to very, very small, like like uh, something like maybe uh, factors of like, uh, shrink it by like N over log N or something like that, mm. right? Go Go from like, N squared to like N log N, it actually makes it much more usable for GPU, for example, because GPU is a great device, but it is very, very much storage limited. Mm, Very nice. Well, I want to say thank you to both of you for coming on the show and sharing with us sort of the origin story of Ingonyama, uh, a little bit about your backgrounds, how it fits into this larger ecosystem and some of the trends And then, yeah, thanks for sharing a little bit about the work you've been doing recently. Thank you for having us. 
It's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you, Anna, as usual. <laughs> cool. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. And I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Rachel, Henrik, and Tanya. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.